Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. You're listening to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. I'm your host, Maria. Throughout the upcoming weeks and months, PowerShift's project is partnering with the Oxfam In-Depth podcast to share the experiences of people living through the coronavirus pandemic. I'd say like people's focus on artificial intelligence, they forget about human intelligence. So the indigenous intelligence, I call that. That's the indigenous people's traditional knowledge who are a centuries of knowledge, who are passed through generations, who helped us to cope and live in harmony with the nature, who help us to found the balance between all the species. So those knowledges are very crucial to help us fasten the climate solutions. Hi. Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. I'm your host, Maria. Over the next two weeks, we'll be bringing you a series of podcasts in partnership with the launch of the Climate, COVID, and Care Zine, which launched on the 24th of August. This publication is a collection of journeys, stories, and ideas from five different feminist activists working at the intersection of gender and climate justice. Through conversations and storytelling, the aim here is to help shift dominant narratives surrounding the climate and COVID crisis by applying an intersectional lens and recentering the voices of Black, Indigenous, and women of color from the global South. So over the course of the podcast series, we'll hear from five different women from Chad, the Fiji Islands, Pakistan, Peru, and Zimbabwe, as they offered their knowledge, reflections, and experiences on feminist approaches to tackle the COVID-19 pandemic and the climate crisis. Linking gender and climate justice weaves the connections between the exploitation of lands and bodies, reproductive work and local economic systems, and the defense of life itself. For Power in the Pandemic, we've put together some of the interview highlights and stories that weren't published in the zine. We hope that the series provides a useful bridge between climate, COVID, and real feminist activism and that it highlights the strategies that are needed to build more caring, sustainable societies. Make sure you check out all the podcast descriptions for links and ways that we can continue the conversation. And also make sure you follow us on Instagram at Power Shifts Project. In this first episode, we hear from Hindu Umaru Ibrahim, an activist from the indigenous Mbororo community in Chad. Hindu grew up in a nomadic society where climate change is something people experience firsthand and started fighting for indigenous people's rights while she was still at school. She's now one of the founders of the Association of Indigenous Women and Peoples of Chad and is a member of the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change, as well as the Indigenous Peoples of Africa Coordinating Committee. Hindu was participating in the COP22 in Marrakesh, which is the UN summit where governments and civil society meet to discuss and make decisions around policies to tackle climate change. At the time, she was a co-chair for the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change, but that didn't mean she had any right to speak. Because the Indigenous Peoples Groups were not an official state, they didn't have a podium or platform. But listen to her telling how they managed to get representatives of the seven different sociocultural regions a seat at the table through making them co-chairs with ally nations, and how eventually she also helped obtain direct representation within the UN climate negotiations for indigenous peoples. Paris, we went to the COP22 in Marrakesh. Mm -hmm. So the platform that they designed, 
they struggle on how they can implement it. And at that time, I was also a co-chair of the International Indigenous People Forum on Climate Change. Mm -hmm. And then they come to our caucus and say like, well, we wanted to implement this, how we can do it. Informally, they consulted us and we are like, okay, well, we will let you know how you can do it. And we design things. And then they call for the first session of the negotiations. And from the first session of the negotiations, what I told them that you can't speak about us without us. So we can't come in the room and sit there and you negotiate about our knowledge and we just shut up. We have nothing to say because the rules and procedures of the UNFCCC, it's not allowing the non-state actors to speak. So that cannot work. And then they say like, well, okay, we will uh, ask the parties as secretariat to agree. So like you can ask them, but if they didn't agree, so you can talk among, among yourself, but you cannot talk with the indigenous peoples that you can talk about the knowledge. And immediately in the room, they figure, they found that they can't talk alone. We have to talk. And I'm so grateful about some countries that who call it me, they say like, you you come and sit next to me. And then this country called me. They make the speech and then they say, like, if you think the indigenous people cannot have a, uh, how to say, plaque, the name plaque, use my country name and speak. But you, by using this, the plaque of the country, the name plaque of the countries, and then I spoke on the name of the indigenous peoples. We have to speak and negotiate for us the rest of the state what we want so that was the first negotiations and we asked that we have to co-chair the dialogue at the UNFCCC with the sub-state we can leave them chair the item that we want so for the first time in the history of the conventions of the UN I can say they don't have any other choice than to leave us co-chair so we co-chairs with them at the next COP COP23. So that's how we get seven representatives from our seven social cultural regions. Because as indigenous peoples, we have seven regions around the world. It's based on our social cultural dimension. It's not based on the UN five regions. That's really impressive work, right? As an indigenous woman, having grown up seeing the interlocking environmental and social issues in her own community, Hindu has never thought about separating indigenous people's rights from land rights, women's rights, and the climate crisis. But she's often found that the conversations about the changing climate and environmental injustices are very limited to very simplified stories of cause and effect. And they're very riddled with barriers to understanding because mainstream narratives rarely take on an intersectional approach. And then uh, my other role, it's also to give the voice of those who are left behind, like indigenous peoples, women, children, youth, but those who didn't went to school, who do not have like the same background of, to those who are deciding for us, like politicians or uh, I don't know, like big companies or even the uh, NGOs. So because uh, the space at the international level is very limited and then the way of communication is not inclusive. So I'm uh, being the voice of uh, those peoples to let the world know that 
it is not only like a box of those who understand each other or who decide on each other, but the work behind all this. So for me, this is the uh, climate justice. If you want me to resume it in just like some work, I can say it's an inclusiveness of everyone without any barriers of language, race, or continent, or uh, ecosystem that belong, but all the humanity inclusive as human being who is one species of the nature. That's why Hindu prefers to use the more useful frame of climate justice, as it focuses not only on environmental devastation, but also on the social, economic, and political issues related to it. I love her redefinition of what the environment can mean, based on mutual dependencies between humans and the natural world. That's also why when we talk about the climate justice, so for us it is not like, oh, okay, stop the uh, greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. and that we done. <clears throat> or just so like, uh, stop desertification or whatever, and then we done, restore the water and we done. It is a bunch of the socials, economic, and um, politicals, and all its interlinkages. And then for me, that's how I define the environment. Because when people define environment, they just want to talk about three animals, like uh, we have fauna and flora who make environment. I'm like, yes, but it's not really correct. You have also the life of all the human who can be best on it. And that's also one of my five, because when we say climate justice, climate justice is not only like we serve the climate and the box is done and we are safe. No, it's really the social issues that people are fighting because of the environment, who can create a uh, conflict, who can create any inequality, all those issues. Next, Hindu shares a concrete example of the climate crisis in Chad, which is the disappearance of Lake Chad in less than a generation, where over 90% of the lake has dried up, severely impacting the lives and sustenance of over 30 million people who live around the lake, in their majority cattle herders, fishermen, and farmers. Have a listen. I give you the examples of the Lake Chad, who is the concrete examples, I mean, scientifically proof. So Lake Chad used to be 25,000 kilometers squares of fresh water. That was just in 1960. So 1960 was the independence of Chad. And in 1980, it have been 10,000 kilometers squares of water. So 90% disappeared, right? And actually now, it's about 2,000 kilometers square of water. So just to give you the graduation of how it's, the resources is really reduced. So it's less than a generation. It's like from my mom generation to, to me, from me to now, it's like 90% of this water just evaporated. So mm-hmm. you have about 40 million people living and depending from these resources. Right. So wow. They are cattle herders, they are fishermen, and they are farmers. So yeah. they do not depend from the end of the month's salaries. They depend from the rainfall mm-hmm. to get them livelihood going on. And that's also why we are seeing the crisis around this place. People fighting to get just access to these resources. Hindu places huge importance on answers and solutions, being rooted in the time-tested knowledge and wisdom of indigenous people living through multiple crises. 
she draws attention to the massive legitimacy gap between scientific knowledge and local indigenous knowledge about the environment. The main difference being that the first sees nature as something to be dominated and maneuvered from a distance through technical discourse, whereas indigenous knowledge shifts our gaze from objects to relationships and mutual interdependence. So how can the integration of what Hindu calls indigenous intelligence benefit conservation, adaptation, and climate resilience goals? And how do we ensure that this knowledge is properly validated, shared, and used to inform climate policy? I'd say like people's focus on artificial intelligence, they forget about human intelligence. So the indigenous intelligence, I call that. That's the indigenous people's traditional knowledge who are a centuries of knowledge, who are passed through generations, who helped us to cope and live in harmony with the nature, who help us to found the balance between all the species. So those knowledges are very crucial to help us fasten the climate solutions. And the easy example is someone who can develop a knowledge, uh, like who can make it scientific knowledge, he can go to one indigenous communities. He stay there for a year or maximum 10 years. And he come back because he know how to write in English, French, Arabic, or whatever major language. He know how to read, and then he, pub he can publish a report of uh, hundreds of th or thousands of pages and say, I get a discovery. I am a PhD, and here I am. I'm like, well, that's really very nice, the way of seeing the world. How about the people who are living there for their entire life? If there is a diploma to give them, are they PhD plus plus? Or what are we going to call them? Mm -hmm. Just the reason we try to ignore them, we ignore this knowledge because they do not know how to write the major languages or how to read the major languages or how to communicate that with other peoples who value these different systems of knowledge. So mm -hmm. that's, that's also one of the injustice I'm finding. They want to always, they say like, oh, indigenous people's knowledge are very important. Thanks now on the IPCC report of the last years, recognize it. The Paris Agreement recognize it. But they always asking like, how they can see the knowledge who are valuable and uh, validate the knowledge. I'm like, right. how you wanted to validate them? You don't know the knowledge. You are not born on this knowledge and you wanted to validate them like who are you to validate this knowledge the only thing that will be very important is to recognize the indigenous people's knowledge are very crucial because they help the generations to be living in harmony with the nature so with this feminist climate activism underway and lots of headway made how does hindu see the climate crisis in relation to the covid 19 global pandemic she actually has a pretty optimistic take on it. You'll hear her telling us that these drastic changes that countries and organizations have undertaken during the pandemic are actually proof that positive change can be made quickly. It really is down to political will. And the same should be able to be done in relation to the climate crisis. And when they come to my land, like just to the old women who never know what is the market, who never turn one light of the electricity, who never saw this electricity, maybe she saw it only in a motorbike or a, a, a lamp does it, but who can know exactly when it's going to rain 
in the next two hours or in the next one year who can plan because she know that her life is dependent from this and she can plan it. So those kind of knowledge are very important for the humanity, but they need to get recognized. And in order to get it recognized, they need to respect the rights of indigenous peoples first. And they can say they recognize our knowledge, they want to have our knowledge, and they can't respect our rights. So the rights respect, rights best approach is the first one. And then the second step is how we can be safe to share the knowledge, how we can plan it, how we can protect it, how we can maintain the, transfer, the, the, uh, the transmissions of the knowledge. And the last point on this one, because people think also the indigenous knowledge are very old and then uh, they are just staying there. But it's not true. The indigenous people's knowledge are evaluating every single day because it's based on the observation of the nature. So when the na- when the nature change, we know that why it's change, and it's not only one thing that change, many things that changing in the same time. And then from that one, we learn and we adapt our life. We learn and we adapt our life. So it's evaluating. That's why it's very innovative knowledge. It's not like uh, a sleeping knowledge at all. So with this feminist climate activism underway and lots of headway made, how does Hindu see the climate crisis in relation to the COVID-19 global pandemic? She actually has a pretty optimistic take on it. You'll hear her telling us that these drastic changes that countries and organizations have undertaken during the pandemic are actually proof that positive change can be made quickly. It really is down to political will. And the same should be able to be done in relation to the climate crisis. The pandemic must be a big opportunity for the world to say, like, if we have this ability to lock ourselves down, to escape from traveling, to escape from many things, we can just uh, we can just oblige these com- uh, these companies to change the system, to change the way that they are investing, to change from the fossil fuel to the renewable, because it is possible. If like we can do the zoom from far. And then we are seeing how this technology is just developed in a month. If they can do that, and if like a big companies who are specialized on car can change and then uh, produce respirators for the uh, for the uh, peoples, if the big companies who turn can do a mask or whatever, so nothing is it's impossible. So they can do a radical change. For me, that's the most important part. So they can put the green recovery in the reality. And I think lastly, on this point, the most important is why we have COVID now, because we are destroying our environment. If they didn't fight the climate change at the same time COVID now, we can have more pandemic that they cannot fight anymore. And as COVID is not limited to one country, it started from China, but now it is around all the communities, all the world. They can have another pandemic who can start from one or another way of environment. Nature can respond in different way if we do not respect it. So I think it's completely possible and it's completely right now. The super years of 2020, it must be a very super years if they can invest on biodiversity, on climate change at the same time on the human health. You've been listening to the mini-series on climate, COVID, and care. 
in partnership with the zine published on August 24th. You can find a link to the zine and more about Hindu and her work with the Indigenous Peoples of Africa Coordinating Committee and other organizations in the episode description below. I'm thrilled and humbled by the amazing work that women like Hindu are carrying out in their countries, especially the power in her words. You cannot talk about us without us, which reminds us to constantly revise which types of knowledge and lives we're privileging above others. And Hindu's plight to integrate indigenous intelligence into climate policy frameworks helps us reflect on the need to shed urges of domination and control, as well as our worship of techno fixes and replace them by an ethics of diversity, interdependence, and care. In the next weeks, we'll be releasing content from this series through our podcast channel, as well as our PowerShifts project Instagram. Make sure you stay tuned and follow us on Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>